I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, as we make our way through this letter, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in the mid to late uh, 50s. I'd like to read to us uh, the entire chapter today, so uh, let us once again give ear to God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, concerning, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Thus far as the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Oh, beloved in the Lord, the Apostle Paul is continuing to address various issues that the Corinthians had raised in a letter that they had written to him. And so taking up a new issue in chapter 8, he begins to talk about uh, uh, food that had been offered to idols. But it's important to also note at this point in chapter 8 that Paul begins really a new section which will develop throughout the next several chapters. And so in this chapter today, I think he introduces two concepts that will be threaded through uh, all of the various issues that he addresses. Uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the rest of the book. And those two concepts are love as well as the need for edification. Love and edification are introduced here, but are threaded through the, the next chapters as Paul begins to address these various issues. But as we come to this issue today, the issue of food that had been offered 
to idols, or more particularly meat that had been sacrificed to idols and then available for eating, I think we come to something that is pretty far culturally removed from us today. If you go to the store and you buy meat, perhaps you look for a USDA uh, certification or perhaps you like to buy organic grass-fed meat. But I doubt any of us have ever gone to the store and picked up a, a, a steak or some other, or a chicken uh, that had been offered to an idol. And so perhaps a little bit of explanation might be in order for us to understand exactly what is being described here. You see, in the ancient world, if somebody wanted to uh, please their pagan god that they worshipped, they would bring an animal to the temple of the god. And that animal would be sacrificed by the priest. And then a a portion of the animal would go to the priest and and the servants that worked there. But the rest of the animal would would turn into a meal that the person offering the sacrifice would enjoy together with invited guests. And they would dine in this banquet hall that would adjoin the temple structure. And they would eat that meal in the presence, or at least the supposed presence, of the pagan deity. And that was part and parcel of the worship service. You offer the sacrifice, and then you enjoy the meal in the presence of the idol. But some of that meat, which was left over, and nothing went to waste in the ancient world, some of that meat if it was left over, would then be sold in the marketplaces for other people to buy. And so for that meat that had been offered to an idol, the question immediately arose, is it okay for a Christian to eat this meat? Now, Jews who were used to a kosher diet, they wouldn't even think of touching that meat. But for the Gentiles, the Gentiles who had had converted to Christianity... There was a live issue. Is it okay to eat meat that at least in some way has been associated with an idol? Well, as we'll see Paul begin to address this issue, he addresses it here in chapter 8, but he's not done with the issue. He actually takes it up again in chapter 10. And we see Paul's answer to the question, can a Christian eat meat that had been offered to an idol? His answer is is complex. His answer ultimately is yes and no, depending on where you eat it and, uh, and what effect it has upon people. And so we see here the Apostle Paul uh, begins to address this issue that the Corinthians had raised in him. And yet one gets a sense that when the Corinthians wrote this letter to Paul talking about food to offer to idols, one gets the sense that they weren't honestly asking Paul, is it okay but rather they were informing Paul of their enlightenment. They were informing Paul of their knowledge that they had arrived at and basically telling him, yes, we think it's okay for us to eat meat offered to idols. And that's what we see the Apostle Paul talking about and actually providing this quote, all of us possess knowledge. In the ESV, that's in quotation marks because Uh, Most commentators agree that this is not what Paul is saying. This is what the Corinthians were saying in their letter. They wrote to Paul, all of us possess knowledge, and we know that it's okay to eat meat offered to idols. And so Paul provides this quote of the Corinthians, but then he immediately counters that quote. Uh, Those Corinthians that were boasting of this knowledge that all of them allegedly possessed, he says, knowledge puffs up. 
knowledge puffs up. You see, in boasting of having enlightened, enlightened view of things, they were showing that ultimately they were just full of hot air. They had an inflated sense of self-worth. They were being confident and arrogant in flaunting this so-called knowledge. And so what Paul, so Paul has to immediately say, yeah, you think you're knowledgeable. Ultimately, you're not. But what you're missing is love. Knowledge will make you conceited. Knowledge gives you a big head. Love is what edifies. Love is what builds up. And here we see the Apostle Paul just introducing this concept that ultimately he's going to flesh out in the whole of chapter 13, where he says, although you may possess all knowledge, if you have not love, you are nothing. And so before even getting into the content of their claims, before engaging with, with, their, uh, with their, no, their so-called knowledge, the, the Apostle Paul questions their whole motivation. They're motivated by conceit being puffed up in their knowledge. And Paul says, no, everything you do as a Christian needs to be motivated by love. And so that's why he says that if you thought you, if you imagine, if you think that you're knowledgeable, that ultimately just shows that you, in fact, do not know. You are ignorant. You are clueless. This echoes what Paul said previously when he says, let, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And it's interesting how the Apostle Paul contrasts their so-called knowledge, not with proper knowledge, but actually with love. Look there at the, the other half of the contrast in verse 3. But if anyone loves God. See, Paul reminds his readers of the first and greatest commandment from which all other virtues flow. This is the commandment that we saw in the reading of the law today. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, what does Moses say? He says, there is one God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, so therefore you ought to love him with all of your faculties. And it's been said that you can, if you love God, then you will keep all of his commandments because love is the fulfillment of the law. Augustine said, once said, love God and do whatever you want. Because ultimately, if everything you do is motivated by love of God, then you will never sin against him, and you will never sin against your neighbor. And so that's why the Apostle Paul contrasts so-called knowledge with love of God. And I think this is important for us, especially as Reformed Christians, especially for those of us who pride ourselves on knowing theology. In the, in the OPC, you know, we, we, we pride ourselves on, on having very rigorous Christian education. Many of us possess tomes and volumes of theology books. But it's always important to be reminded of the fact that we do not pursue knowledge just for the sake of obtaining facts, of becoming smart or intelligent, learning fa uh, fancy Latin terms. No, the whole purpose of theology, the whole purpose of theology is to love God. To know him is to love him. And so that ought to always be our pursuit, is to pursue knowledge of God, uh, but to the end that we might love him more. And so that's why he, the Apostle Paul doesn't highlight the importance of the Christian knowledge, as important as that is. True knowledge is good and important. But ultimately, what does he say? If you love God, then you're known by God. You see, what really matters is not our knowledge. God isn't impressed with how many books we've read. Ultimately, what matters is not that we know God, but that he knows us. 
as Paul tells the Galatians, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And so ultimately, that's what, the, that's what Paul is reminding the Corinthians of. The boasting of their knowledge, he says, no, you need to love God in order to prove that he knows you. And so to paraphrase 1 John 4, we know because he first knew us. And ultimately, that knowledge of God leads to love. So returning to the topic at hand in verse Four, Paul provides two more quotations where now he really begins to engage with this so-called knowledge. And we see that the Corinthians were justifying their partaking of meat offered to idols with their theology. You see their theological rationale in verse 4 with these two quotations. First, an idol has no real existence. Second, there is no God but one. And so here is what the Corinthians were saying with their knowledge. Look, we know that these idols are not real. They have no real existence in the world. They're just made up. And we know that there is only one true living God. Therefore, we can eat meat offered to idols because they don't really exist. And in our minds, we're worshiping the true God. You see how they're able to justify their, uh, their actions with this so-called knowledge? Well, it's important to note that Paul does not dispute the, their, their first two premises. I mean, this is the bedrock foundation of his preaching, that idols, the, the, the gods of the nations are false, and that there is only one true living God who created us all, who now commands all men to repent and believe. That's how Paul preached to the pagans. He doesn't dispute the first two premises. What he disputes is their, is their conclusion. Because they were thinking, they were thinking that they could eat meat offered to idols even within the premises of the pagan temples. And so Paul first has to acknowledge the fact that, that the gods of the nations, the idols, are so-called gods. We know that the ancient world was filled with idols which existed in name only. You may think of Paul's encounter or uh, a time spent in, in the city of Athens. And how he was overwhelmed by all of the various uh, idols that were within the city. And Corinth was no different. Corinth had several different pagan temples. Even during that time, uh, the the emperor, uh, Claudius, uh, appointed himself as a god. And there was a whole cult of the the emperor that one would worship. uh, That Both living and dead emperors were proclaimed as gods. And so Paul isn't disputing the fact that Many people bear the name or the title of God or Lord in the ancient world, but he says they exist only in name, in name only. And so acknowledging that in verse 5, he then goes forward in verse 6 to give his statement of faith. And this is something that uh, I think the entire church would have recognized as a familiar confession of faith when he says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. You see what the Apostle Paul is doing here in verse 6 is he's giving his own take of the Hebrew Shema, which we read in the reading of the law today in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 6. Hear, O Israel. Uh, That command to hear is the Hebrew word Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the most fundamental basic confession of faith that we see contained in Scripture. And the Apostle Paul takes that statement 
which faithful Jews would recite morning and evening every single day. He takes that statement and he puts a New Testament spin on it. You see, what he does is he takes those three words, Lord, God, one, and he he applies it not only to the Father, but also to the Son. And Paul, in the statement of faith, masterfully reminds his readers that no one can know and love God the Father except through God the Son, as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 11. Notice there when he says, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. It's interesting to note how uh, although all things come from the Father, they only come through us through the Son. Did you see that? The change. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here we see Jesus promoted as the mediator first of creation. All things come from the Father through the Son. As John tells us in John chapter 1, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. There we see Christ as the mediator of creation. He is the spoken word which created all things. But also we see him as the mediator of redemption. When Paul says, through whom we exist. Here I think he's speaking of us as believers. Those of us who participate in the newness of life that Christ has obtained for us. That we experience in him and through him. And so everything comes from the Father through the Son through the Son, back to the Father to glorify Him. And of course, we can add, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul didn't need to mention that because he already mentioned the Spirit back in chapter 2, and he's going to mention the Spirit again in the rest of the letter. And so here Paul is taking those who boasted of their theological knowledge, having their, you know, their claims, God, idols don't really exist, and there's only one God, He takes those who boasted of their theological knowledge back to Sunday school. He takes them back to square one. There is only one God. But the whole purpose of of this theology is not so that that you could be puffed up, but that you might love this God. That you might love the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then moving from love of God, he moves immediately from the the great and first commandment. He he moves to the second commandment, that is, love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 7, he reminds his readers that not all possess this knowledge. Not all of those who in, in the church of Corinth were as enlightened as they were. There were those who recently came out of idolatry for whom the fear and dread of these idols and their supposed power was a very real thing for them. If not intellectually, at least emotionally, they were still very tied to this idolatry. Uh, Paul spoke to the Galatians how they lived in bondage under these false gods. And so these new converts coming right out of paganism, for them, these things were still very real and they lived in fear and trembling of the supposed powers. And so these people, these new believers in Christ, would not be able to go to these feasts and partake of the meat offered to, to idols in this supposedly detached manner that the knowledgeable could. They, they said, well, I can go there and I can eat the meat and have nothing to do with the idol in my mind. Paul says not everyone can do that. Not everyone could do that. In fact, there are those who, if they, if they were led to do this, 
they would eat this meat as, it w- as if it was really offered to an idol who really existed in their mind and thus would engage in idolatry. He describes these people as having a weak conscience. Our, our conscience is our moral compass. It, it tells us the sense between what is right and what is wrong. And somebody who has a weak conscience is easily swayed. It's those people who, who are led astray very easily. And they lapse back into their old habits. And that's who the Apostle Paul is mentioning here when he says, you need to be careful of your fellow believers who are easily swayed. And so Paul isn't talking about offending the overscrupulous as he does in Romans chapter 14, those people who think they shouldn't eat meat for other reasons. No, he's talking about stumbling the weak. This is the difference between uh, uh, forcing a Christian who is a teetotaler to have a drink versus a Christian who's a struggling alcoholic to have a drink. It's that latter case. Both are a sin, but the, the latter is what Paul is referring to here. What he's concerned about is, is their, through their actions that they're leading their fellow believers into rank idolatry. And so he describes their conscience as being defiled in verse 7 or even wounded in verse 12. In fact, that they themselves are destroyed in verse 11 because they are made to stumble by falling back into that sin of idolatry. Now, Paul wants to be clear. It's not the food in and of itself that is wrong. There's nothing wrong with the the meat. It hadn't been contaminated in a literal sense. That's why he says in verse 8, food will not commend us to God. There's debate about whether this was what the Corinthians were saying or what Paul was saying. I think you can understand both of them to say it, but in different ways. Paul, in verse 8, says food will not commend us to God. We're no better off if we eat it. We're, uh, you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't really make a difference what type of food you eat. Food in, in and of itself is morally indifferent. This is similar to what he says about circumcision in chapter 7. In chapter seven. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised in God's eyes. And this reflects what Jesus taught when he was here on earth in Matthew chapter 15, when he says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Or what Paul says in Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's nothing wrong with the food in and of itself. That's why Paul will go on to say in chapter 10, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Quoting from Psalm 24. And so Paul, hypothetically, has, nothing, has no problem with, peop- with Christians eating meat that had been offered to an idol in a different context. If that meat found itself in the marketplace, Paul says, buy the meat, don't ask, don't tell, just eat it and enjoy it at home. And if if an unbeliever invites you over for dinner and you're inclined to go, go. Don't ask where they got the meat. Enjoy it because it's the Lord's. That's different from what he's addressing here. Here, the apostle, so it's not a question of what one may eat, but where one eats it and what effect that has upon others, especially weak fellow believers. 
So Paul is not talking about people who buy the meat in the marketplace and bring it home or eat it in another in another's home, which was their Christian liberty. Paul is addressing uh, here in chapter eight. This involves eating the meat at the temple in the supposed presence of the God. And this is sinful. He clearly says it in verse 12. You sin when you do this, both against your brother and the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 10, he says you cannot eat at the table of demons. And that's exactly what's involved if it, uh, for Christians to go to the pagan temples and eat the meat that was offered there. Now, we might ask at this point, well, what is the draw? If these Christians who boasted of their knowledge knew that the idols didn't really exist, why on earth would they want to go to the temples in the first place? I think that's a good question. First, I think it's because they get a free meal. Now, some of you may not appreciate that, but I can appreciate a free meal, especially when you consider the fact that meat was an absolute luxury in the ancient world, just as it is in many parts of the world today. Only the very wealthy would have meat. For the most part, people ate grain and cereal and just bland stuff. And so to get the opportunity to have a roasted lamb for free would be great. Also, there was the social pressure. Uh, uh, These feasts that would be put on in the temples often were put on by very wealthy people. They would have this, this grand sacrifice and they would invite their friends and family and, and, and co-workers and, and others. And, and even in, in Corinth at that time, there was a huge annual festival that coincided with, uh, with the, the games that went on. And every citizen of Corinth had a right to go. And so you could see how in their mind they begin justifying, well, wait a minute, I know these idols don't really exist. I know there's only one true God. I'm a a citizen of Corinth. I get a free meal out of this. And there's that whole social aspect that if you don't go, then people may not think you're cool. And so there we can begin to understand the draw. And there we can see, well, maybe these people aren't all that different from us. So that's why the Apostle Paul in verse 9 speaks about their right. Now, this is often misunderstood. We uh, we, we shouldn't understand Paul in verse 9 to be conceding that they have a right. But rather, this was a self-claimed right that they thought they possessed. Even worse translation is liberty. This liberty of yours. No, it, that, that's not the, the Greek word that Paul's using. He's talking about a right that they thought they possessed when, in fact, they actually didn't. And perhaps it's the right that they had as citizens of Corinth that they were, that they were uh, flouting. But Paul says, you take this right and you destroy your brothers. How? Well, quite simply, he says, if they see you feasting in these pagan festivals at the temple, will they not be encouraged, literally edified, built up to do this? It's an an ironic uh, turn of phrase that the Apostle Paul uses there. They're building them up to engage in idolatry, building them up to tear them down. And so he says, so by your quote-unquote knowledge, this self-claimed so-called knowledge, rather than truly building up their brother in love, they're destroying their brother for whom Christ died. A powerful phrase that the Apostle Paul uses there. They're destroying their brother for whom Christ died. 
I think we ought to be clear that the Apostle Paul is not saying that somebody for whom he died will ultimately be lost, that Christ, the good shepherd, will lose one of the sheep for for whom he laid down his life, as Christ said he would certainly not do in John chapter 10. If that weak brother who stumbled and led to fall into idolatry, if that weak brother was truly united to Christ, then certainly they will not continue down that path of idolatry. As Paul says in chapter 6, such were some of you, including former idolaters. But you, think, but you see, what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he's, when he's mentioning the fact that Christ died for this person is he's reminding his readers of the sacrificial love of Christ, which he now calls us to show to one another. When you look around at church and you look at these people sitting next to you in the pews, you need to view them first and foremost as somebody for whom Christ died. That really puts things into perspective. For Then when you ask, well, how, I, how ought I to treat this person? Christ died for you. He died for your brother too. And so treat them accordingly. You see, Christ didn't insist upon his rights but he willingly laid down his life. He laid down those rights for us and for our salvation. And so Paul's telling these Corinthians, you need to lay down your so-called rights for the sake of your weaker brother. And Christ, who died for this, these people, who obtained them with his own precious blood, if they, if, if, when you sin against them, Paul's saying, you sin against Christ himself in verse 11. And he takes this personally because they're members of his own body. Saul, or Paul learned this lesson when he was known as Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. As he was persecuting the church, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? No, he says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes these things personally because we are members of his body. He has very strong words for those who cause little ones to sin. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's what Paul is reminding his readers who boasted of their knowledge, who, who, who flaunted their rights without thinking of their weaker brothers. It's really interesting that as Paul takes up this topic, and as, by the way, he's not done with this topic. He's going to uh, uh, talk more about it in chapter 10. But it's very interesting that when he's addressing those who asserted their so-called right to eat in pagan temples, he doesn't speak to them as individuals, warning them of the peril of their own souls, at least not right away. He will in chapter 10 when he says, you cannot sit at the table of demons and the Lord's table. You, you are putting yourself in peril. It's interesting. He doesn't talk to them about the dangers of their own soul first, but he speaks to them of the dangers of others. He speaks of their neighbor. See, this knowledge, so-called knowledge, was leading them to sin not only against themselves, but more importantly against their neighbor, which Paul tells us is ultimately a sin against Christ because they're members of the body of Christ, which ultimately is a sin against God. Because Christ is God the Son. 
And so in sinning against our neighbors, we sin against Christ and ultimately sin against God. This is Paul's first point on the topic of meat offered to idols. And so following the example of his Lord, Paul concludes this section in verse 13 when he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. Paul would willingly surrender his rights to be able to eat meat. He would willingly surrender those rights if it caused his brother to stumble. And there we see Paul following the example of our Lord who surrendered his rights so that we could be be, uh, part of his people. So may God grant to us not just knowledge, but love. Love to him as well as our neighbor. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that although you were in the form of God, you are and continue to be eternal God the Son. You willingly surrendered your rights. You humbled yourself to take on the form of a servant, to live a life of suffering and obedience for us and for our salvation. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow in that example that you have set for us. Give us grace through the power of your Holy Spirit so that we would be mindful of those around us, that we would be sensitive to the needs and the weaknesses of our fellow believers for whom you died. Fill us with love, not only for you, but also for our neighbor. We ask this in your name. Amen.